So, hello and welcome to episode seven of Forensic Fix, a podcast brought to you live from MSAB, where we invite guests from the industry to discuss the latest news in DFIR, current issues, and a general chat about all things digital forensic and investigations. So I'm your host, Adam Furman, a tech evangelist here with MSAB. So today's podcast is a little different to the norm. Episode six was also different, but we're actually recording this live from the UK annual event. So for those of you here in attendance, please make sure to still listen because I need your numbers on my um, figures. But I'm delighted to say that today's guest is Jason Cullum. Deja vu, some may say, as Jason appeared on the very first episode of Forensic Fix. But for some strange reason, I received a lot of requests to have you back, as they wanted to hear more, because apparently I'd cut you off. So, but you're clearly doing something right, Jason. But let me start with telling you a little bit about Jason. So Jason's been a police officer since 2009, and prior to policing, Jason was a plumber for 10 years. And during that time, he got a degree in police science, which led him ultimately to join in the police. So Jason has took the traditional policing route of starting in uniform and responding to 999 calls. And after around seven years, he then started to move into the specialist departments and traversing into the digital evidence side of the police and world. Now, Jason is getting very popular in this industry. And at a recent event where he gave a presentation, he was actually asked for his autograph. So I may actually get one from you today before you start charging for them, but I'm sure Jason will hang around and do any sign-in sessions and T-shirts for you guys. So, Jason, I've given the guys a small insight into your oppressive career, and for those who have missed episode one, can you give us some more detail about your past, your career path, and how you got into your current role? Yeah, I think um, I, I did kind of fall into uh, digital forensics, and I think... There's one person in particular who I work with in uniform that can't believe I'm in digital forensics because he thinks I'm useless at digital forensics. Um, and uh, to this day, he still I can't believe you're in digital forensics and you're like the force lead on digital. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I went to uh, work in the paedophile unit because um, I, I was getting frustrated with uh, dealing with jobs and, and wanted to retain that investigation footprint. And I had some really, really good jobs and I'd give it to... A, prison investigation unit and coming the next day and it had been NFAs and I'm like that was a charge all day long um, so there the investigation then got into me and then I joined the paedophile unit and obviously um, I, I owned it from start to finish yeah um, and, and I, I fell in love with the I'm using, I keep using the word but fell in love but I did fall in love with the actual investigation of the digital digital environment and I liked it because it was difficult so sometimes with digital you have to do so much work for a very little golden nugget, and then that golden nugget is normally the thing that will solve the case. And some of the other investigation roles, and I'm not belittling it, but it would probably bore me to be doing things where someone's been arrested, got CCTV and then doing it, that would yeah. kind of really bore the hell out of me. So I've st stuck in digital because of the fact that I love the challenge of having to do so much work for very little gain, but the little gain is what would normally get your detection rates, essentially. Yeah. So. so we'll start off because we covered a lot in the first episode that you featured on, so I'm going to take you down a slightly different route okay. for, for today's episode. And I have shared the questions with him, so I'll I'm going to start with a million-pound question here. Where do you see this industry in 10 years' time? Um, artificial intelligence is massively rising as well, really. Um, 
I, I, I do worry about the policing service in, in, in all, really, because um, we're constantly getting flogged in the media. Um, some of the things that some police officers have done, which has damaged our careers for probably the next 30, 40 years, public confidence is gone. Um, and, and that's really difficult for us to regain as well, really. Uh, private sector um, paying more f than what public sector is. Um, police forces not recognising that the, 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 the most important asset that they have is their staff and the, the ability to pay them properly um, and the, the mindset of police services to not um, invest in those staff yeah. and then in instead let them go and then pay them a load of money to then retrain someone else to do the same sort of staff. So in my world, the, the, that's, what, that's where the policing is going wrong yeah. and such really. So, I, d I do worry that digital forensics will be privatised. Um, yeah. I, I know that's not the case because of the, the different reasons of the, the cut and thrust of policing is where yeah. we want to be. Well, policing survives because it's on the goodwill. Yes. The, the goodwill of the, the officers who do the job, yeah. we all go that extra mile. Yeah. And yeah, like you say, if you take that away and privatise it, you yeah. then lose that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people in this room, I've, I've spoken to some people this last couple of days, and a lot of us are, are driven by our moral compasses um, about the, doing the right thing rather than actually earning more money. And then there are most people in this room who probably earn a lot more if they left the policing service. But we, we are here because we want to do the right thing and we want to protect people. And that's what most of us signed up to do as well, really. Yeah. And a very specific question because we're, we're here in the UK today. What, what do you think the UK does well regarding digital forensics? And what do you think the UK could be doing better? I think the standards that we work to are, are so incredibly high in terms of the um, security, um, information security, and some of the legislation that we have to work to. Um, obviously, the things like, like PACE and CPIA, um, and all other reason lines of inquiry to pursue, and the fact that the threshold is so high in UK policing that I think, compared to other um, security services across the world, etc., really, I think sometimes they see that how we do stuff is probably we go much more advanced than they probably would ever bother to really because they just feel like it's a, it's a done case really. Yet I don't think in policing we kind of accept that. We still have to go down those avenues and we're constantly trying to find areas that would undermine our case. And even sometimes you've got a slam dunk of a case, you still could lose it on the basis of you've extracted a phone wrong or they're the risks that we've got really. Um, what, what have we done wrong was the second part, was it? Oh, no, what, what we could do better because we're all here today, nationally, all, all learning from each other, which COVID unfortunately put a massive dent into. But like from my previous experience as a police officer, one thing I felt that we could do better was talk more. We, we all develop these sort of silo in-house techniques, but we don't share them. There, there's no national lead or each constabulary has not got... It used to happen sort of regionally, like I know my force was East Anglia, we used to meet up as a region and sort of discuss tactics and things like that. But that's disappeared as far as I'm aware. That's something I feel that we could certainly do more of. Um, I would say blockers. Um, I've kind of stuck my head above a parapet by doing all the things I do, because I'm quite outspoken. Uh, and I wish I wasn't so driven by my, <coughs> my own moral compass of if things are wrong, like what I've spoken about yesterday. Um, I, I feel I've got, I've got to do something about it and I wish sometimes I could just switch my brain off and just come to work and just do a, a day's work and then go home, but I, I can't, it's, it's just within me to challenge. And I think the biggest cultural problem that we have within the policing services are that these, that there's people that will block you 
to try and do things for the right reasons and they're normally within higher management or someone's got any little silo role that they basically want to protect what they've got so they will challenge and even as I sit here today I'm fighting some of my own technical managers about things that I'm doing to try and help police officers yeah. um, and I'm like I'm, I'm trying to help people why are you trying to block me and I'm, so after all this work to prove that I'm right at what I'm doing and then they're still challenging me on the basis that I've proven that I don't need to do anything else other than what I've said yeah. um, so I, I wish we we institutionalised uh, policing in terms of getting rid of those sorts of people or basically uh, getting the right people in in the right places to make change yeah. for us, all of us. Um, and, and again, what I spoke again yesterday is the fact that we just don't get the proper training, we don't get the ability to spend the time doing what we want to do and then we just punish police officers and basically push and blame on them for something that they're not done wrong. Um, and I find that really, I find that really, me personally, that I'm really protective over the digital community in a whole really and police officers that it's morally wrong so that's why I want to make change yeah. and this is why I keep talking I worry that I'm that this is the Jason show but it's um, I, I just need to do this to make sure that we as a community start rising up and making change and it's only can be if we all start doing this sort of thing yeah. as well really well, I do think I've been very lucky since I've left the police that I've nationally I've seen how a lot of units operate and I've also been fortunate enough to see globally how units operate. And there are some very, very clever people working within these units, creating scripts that are helping automate certain processes. The problem is none of that is being shared. And you look back, and I'll mention a word that will make a lot of people in this room shudder, which is ISO. How much money has the UK taxpayer wasted on all of the individual police forces writing their own SOPs? Yeah. Why wasn't that done collectively? It just yeah, it's, it's bonkers, isn't it? It's like I should, as a police officer, I should be able to go to every single force. Um, there's, a, there's been a massive um, terrorism incident. Uh, we need to send a load of police officers to Manchester, for example, um, to help back up all things. I wouldn't have a clue what paperwork they use. Um, although we all do the same job, they'd have completely different software. They'd have different uh, SOPs, and uh, policing should be able to, like Police Scotland, is wherever I go in the UK. We all have the same sort of thing that we do, but we don't. And we're just 43 yeah. different forces doing 43 different things. Um, but we will never all agree on the same things that we no. do. And, and, and there, are, there is got to be some flexibility, don't get me wrong, because some communities are completely different and you, you have to adapt your style to police yeah. on the basis of what you're doing. But, but yeah, it's absolutely bonkers that we're all, all going to have to do this again, really, and then again and then again. And there's no information sharing. And, you know, I think that I do, but anyone can have what I or share anything I yeah. because it's not for I'm not protective of what I generate or do and I'm not bothered if someone said oh but you change this I'm not but you'll get people where they've designed something they're like oh no you can't design it this is my design but if it's not fit for purpose then you've got yeah. to be flexible and adaptable yeah and I, I know my old police force we did share SOPs with yeah. sort of neighbour and forces which helped sort of share some of that burden D does your force do any of that with neighbour and um, I think because we were in the MSU collaboration um, that under the umbrella of the MSU environment, we, we, we're kind of divorced from each other, but we haven't because we're still under It's a bit, bit weird and <laughs> far too long for this uh, podcast. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think, especially with um, me as a digital media coordinator, we have um, regional meetings and we discuss the sorts of things that we're doing and good, sharing good practice. And I, I don't know if, that is a, if there's a DFU type environment, um, something that I've never been invited to, yeah. where we talk about phone report design or 
SFRs, and uh, I spoke to the Met recently, and they happily shared me their SFR design. Yeah. Um, and brilliant. It's just, it's just lovely to speak to someone, and they're like, yeah, you can have what you want, um, and that's what th that's the culture that we should have. Cause yeah. We're all doing the same job. We all do. We should all be doing the same thing, which is protecting people and putting bad people in prison. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's cultural problems, yeah. and I don't understand why they. Yeah. But it, it's a bit. I look back, like I joined the police in 2004. I, I look back to my time when I turned up at Ashford, and like you say, there were 16 officers in that training room. We all had different forms. We're all wearing different uniforms, and it just. Even to me back then, it, it seemed crazy. Yeah. Because like you say, I should be able to go into any neighbouring or any constabulary and turn up at a computer yeah. and know what I'm doing. But like you say, I yeah. wouldn't have a clue. No. Yeah. And I just can't see that something needs to change. And I, I think the most common theme of podcast guests that I have on, whether they're from the United States, Canada, wherever, it's always funding. It's government funding, which they feel is the biggest limitation of what they're actually doing, whether it's for training, equipment, um, and it's almost, it's, it's quite easy for governments to ignore this sort of problem, because it's a bit like drugs. If, if, you, if you're not out there catching drug dealers, then you don't have a drug problem. Hmm. Yeah. But if you do catch them, then you do have a drug problem, yeah. and sometimes this industry can go below that radar, which, yes, some people would say the, the crimes can be victimless, but they're not that there's always a victim, whether those images have been shared for the last 20 years, there is a victim there. And I think, nationally, they need to start to react to that yeah. and provide the forces, the funding, to do the job that yeah. they need to. So, we're talking about the industry globally, and we've got projects such as what's been spoken about this morning, which is Project Vic, we've got the NIST files and some great open source projects like the LEAP series that Alexis Bregoni's written. We've spoke about nationally as UK, do you think globally there's anything that we could be doing more to make more advancements in this world? Yeah, I, I, I think especially the, um, is it the COPO Act, the, is it cloud, I can't remember, the, 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 the fact that American, oh, some American um, private companies own so much data and obviously we've waited years and years and years for that to come into us because there's so much we can do with Google accounts in particular, Apple iClouds and the sharing of that information and, and, and also giving it both ways really and, and, and again that's about building those relationships with each other but like when you look at America you always look at the FBI as what, like the shining light yeah. of all and obviously I've never spoken to anyone from the FBI in terms of the level of things that they do or the level of training, uh, the level of software but I do think that there's things all, all across the world where work practices, uh, ability to detect crime um, would be much better if it was so much more shared really. And, and again, it's, al it's almost like the blockers of stopping us to get there where before to share information with, uh, I remember once upon a time I, um, I'd identified a victim um, in one of my pollock cases and she'd, she'd left a tablet with her location service on so I could pinpoint her name and the, the address that she lived at. And I wanted to disclose that to um, Australia to safeguard and that's that you've got to go through the, the 12 month through, I can't remember the name of it now, it's, what was it before the, when you go to the home office and it goes through NLAP. Yeah. NLAP. And I'm like, this is absolutely bonkers. My number one priority above um, detecting crime is safeguarding. So I just rang up Australian <laughs> police service and I said, I'm a detective from uh, Northamptonshire police. Can you send an officer around to the scene? And I'd breached all of policy, codes and policies, yeah. but I, I, I could justify it and say, my number one role is to safeguard that child. I'm not waiting 12 months. 
I need a safeguarding today. And Australia went round there within what, an hour. They rang me up, you're safeguarding, thanks very much for the referral. And it's like, why do I have to keep challenging policies when I just want to protect them? And it's yeah. just like, we just have all these cultural things in, in place of sharing information. And that should have been a fast, there should have been a fast track route of life at risk or you know, child yeah. at risk in particular. So yeah, I think that's, that's the yeah. sort of thing where it's a classic example. Yeah, it's definitely something that we need to learn from. I featured a guest on from Homeland Security who works undercover in child exploitation and he very much does exactly what you've just said. If they come across a case and it crosses borders, he just picks the phone up. Yeah. And like you'll see in a lot of the products nowadays from vendors that there's always warrant returns from Apple. How, how many people here in the UK use warrant returns? Because we can't. No. Because of yeah. the limitations where it shouldn't be. Because our American colleagues, they can get that data so, so quickly compared to us. And it, 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 it's a limitation of working in this industry where the internet has no borders, but we're still governed by them. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure how we can fix that. No. Um, we've spoke about how the UK could have national events to represent each constabulary and each organisation. Mm. Could we also do it on a global scale? Yeah. Probably something like that needs to happen. And you see a great resource, and I always plug on this podcast, which is a DFIR Discord server. And that just goes to show globally representation is huge on there. Mm. The amount of different countries on there all offering support for each other. I've come across this case or come across this database. What do I do here? And it's just the community working yeah. together. And globally, sort of politically, we need to do that more yeah. rather than just as an industry. So we go back to your, your pathway into digital forensics. If you could be better at one thing, what would that be? That's a really good question, isn't it? Um, I actually thought that one as well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, what could I be better at? Um, I, think, I think sometimes is, um, my, my biggest flaw is, is letting go and sharing the, the, the burden as such, really. And, even me as a supervisor, sometimes I still forget I'm a supervisor and, and still do these investigations of phone extractions. And I, f I think me, if I'm going to criticise myself, I'm too, mu too much hands-on. Yeah. Um, and I wish I, I could get better at um, disseminating some of the pain that I, I kind of share, really. And, um, but yeah, I think that's probably w one of my biggest flaws as such, really, is that obviously m I'm just so driven to do change things and also I'm so driven that if a job comes in and there's no one available that and I'll drive it forward um, yeah. but to the detriment of my own um, personal self as such really and mental health is a big thing for me anyway and sometimes um, I, talk, I always talk about single point of failure um, and there's a lot of things when um, you look at what I do as a supervisor everything comes through me so if anything happens to me then the likelihood is that it's going to fail um, yeah. so when I set my teams up I talked yesterday about that all my team have specialisms, but there's a second in command. So if even if that one falls over, there's always a second one, and that's something that I've got to change for myself, is to ensure that there's no single point of failure on, on myself as well, um, in, including doing this sort of thing. So if there's anyone else who wants to take up the mantle of uh, fighting the good cause, please do so. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably what I would yeah. change about me. So going back to what Kevin presented on yesterday, yeah. if you're recruiting into your unit, what, what are the key things that you look for in staff members? Um, 
I'm more about them as a person, really. I, I, like, I like to make sure that the people that I'm, I, I want people that work hard. Um, I want them to be diligent in terms of what they do. Um, a real, I look for a good moral compass in terms of um, the ability to work by themselves. Um, and, I, and I look for people, so when I'm talent spotting for some of the, the people that I've recruited, I, I want to know what skill sets that they can bring to it. And sometimes they will, I've got no evidence in terms of working within digital. But then I'll make, mention something like, um, I interviewed someone a couple of weeks ago and he, he mentioned the fact that he, in his spare time he used to build apps. Um, and, and again, previous before that I interviewed someone and he was so far above me in terms of, I, I ain't got a clue what he was talking about on interview. He completely lost me. Um, and he basically would, he built his own server in his, his spare time. Um, and basically he designed his own apps. He went to a concert, he downloaded onto his own app that he built. He went into his server that was in his bedroom to work out what the itinerary was. Yeah. Um, and they're the sorts of core things that I'm looking for because some of the other things you can teach, um, investigations and such really, and there's probably an argument of can you teach someone to investigate? Um, and it's also about what makes them as a person really because everything that we all do, obviously when I did my degree, you were talking about what drives behaviour and there's always, you're driven, your behaviour is driven by something before, yeah. um, especially in terms of childhood trauma and all that sorts of things. Um, so, so again, I'm, I'm looking at high profile people as well as, as much as I can in the, in the recruitment process to make sure that they're the right sorts of person, really. Um, making sure that they're articulate and all the sorts of things, really. And we do naturally recruit a lot of people that have um, mental health issues within this digital environment and all the, some of the things that they suffer with. Um, the good thing about digital is sometimes you don't have to talk to so many people, yeah. don't you, really? So if you really struggle with... Uh, talking to people, um, then sometimes the digital environment is the sort of thing that, that, that a lot yeah. of people go and that, towards. And that's quite a hard balance, yeah. that, because I totally understand where, where you're coming from, because we prefer to look at a screen if you're in this industry than yeah. talk to people. Yeah. But you do have to go to court yes. and present that evidence. Yeah. So it's a real fine, fine balance, balance, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is a real fine balance. And I, I think, if I'm honest, since I've gone into digital, I've become more antisocial as I've got. Yeah. If it's something I'm interested in, then I'm fine, I'll talk to anyone. But if I go out to a pub or something and someone starts talking to me, they're wasting my time because I'm never going to speak to them again. Yeah. And I, I have this, like, I've got to go to the toilet or the exit strategy. Before. I think it's a cop thing, isn't it? Where they start talking to you and you're like, I've got to go somewhere to get out that yeah. conversation. And, uh, and again, I think, that, I don't know if it's, I'm not saying digital makes you mad, uh, but I, I probably am, but it's, it's changed me as a person. And I, I, again, that comes from, some of the bad things that we all in this room have had to sit and look at, uh, write about, listen to, and it, it destroys your life in a way yeah. that you'll probably never get back again, really. Yeah, it, it, it makes you very cynical of the technology. Yes. And, yeah. But when I knew Kevin was doing that presentation, it got me thinking back to how I ended up in digital forensics and also some of the interviews that I was on. So we had a mixture of police officers and civilian in my unit, which, yeah. which I felt worked yeah. very well. Yeah. And when we were after a new mobile phone examiner, we sort of had an interview technique that we used, and part of it was to hand them certain handsets and see how they handled them and sort of used to them. And I remember one gentleman, we sort of asked him how he'd get the data from, I think it was an iPhone 6 or something. He said that he'd take the back off and take the hard drive out, and straight away we were like, right, see you later. Yeah. Um, because there's, there's something about being confident, but yes. if, if you don't know, yeah. Yeah. you know, there's... Yeah. That no, don't BS a BSer basically in the police, isn't it? Yeah, so and, yeah, and uh, again, d d something as well. We um, we so the, when when I recruit for digital media investigators, 
the first part is an informal um, invest, um, interview, and then the second part is a practical um, yeah. test of open source, giving them some cool data. And that also gives me an ability to assess where their weaknesses are as well. And I think sometimes it's not a pass or fail matter, um, but sometimes it gives you that ability before I've even recruited that person, these are their weaknesses. Yeah. And it, weaknesses isn't a bad thing. It's my job to make sure that they give them sufficient training, um, but also have the ability. And sometimes it gives them the opportunity to think, actually, this job isn't for me. Yeah. And there are occasions where sometimes we'll recruit people, they, they desperately want to do the job, phone examiner, police officer, whatever it is. And then sometimes you actually start doing it and think, this job just isn't for me. Yeah. And sometimes I think in the recruitment process, we should give them that ability of have a little bit of a taster, um, yeah. and then then they can have that cool off period essentially. Yeah. But but it's hard to be an all rounder in this industry. Like, like I said, Mild Lab was half police, half civi civilian, which worked really well because the police had the sort of investigative mindset, yeah. where the civilian guys come in with a lot of sort of code and knowledge and things yeah. like that. Which between the two of us, we we shared, yeah. and it worked really well. But we had a guy in our unit who was really good on Linux. Well, yeah. I left that to him. Yeah. I preferred the Mac and the mobile sort of side of things. And yeah. you, you sort of find your little specialisms, yeah. don't you? Yeah. And I think most units probably work the same. Yeah. Um, I used to enjoy coding, so that always got passed in my way. And very much on, I was always, I was a police officer, so I was lazy. If I could automate a process by writing a script to do it, I did it. Yeah. And um, those are the sort of things that, helps a unit tick, basically. Yeah. And, um, but Kevin's presentation made me think, well, how did I get into it? And mine was, so I was an undercover drugs team, so not in digital at all. Yeah. And I'd like to say, so I had an injury, but I then started doing a degree in software development. And the injury I picked up on a warrant, and I'd like to say it was really glamorous, but I slipped on the grass as I was running in, and my kneecap ended up on the side. <laughs> So I was restricted duties for a little while. Yeah. So I was basically just exhibits officer and I was just really bored. So started a degree in software and thankfully my DI at the time sort of said, you're wasted here yeah. doing this Adam. So he sort of pushed me to the digital forensic unit and sort of started just on the acquisition stages. So pretty much sausage factory forensics. Yeah. And then I, I soon got bored or sort of, I started to think to myself, why am I clicking these buttons in FTK Imager when I could, automate that process. So I pretty much did myself out of a job because I, I wrote an automation yeah. script to do it for me. But then I started, because I had the time to do that, I then started diving deeper into the data, looking at databases, and that's where naturally I then went into mobile phone analysis, which I really enjoyed because I did computer forensic analysis, but the problem is most of those puzzles have been solved. So there was LimeWire and all those sort of things, and there was papers on them. They were already written. Yeah. How an artifact got there, what artifacts are left behind. It's very difficult to do that with mobiles, because yeah. as soon as you write that paper, it's out of date. Yeah. They'll have released a new version, change the database, why? Just because they want to, yeah. or it works easier, or if it's Apple, they'll have multiple different timestamps in different formats, and that's why I love this industry. And, but I got into the forensic lab just for an interest, so yeah. I enjoyed software development, but I've always been a bit of a, a geek, yeah. and it wasn't cool to be a geek when I was younger, but it is now, but I think, did I know about file sizes? Because that was one of my recommendations to Kevin, that I think people should have an awareness of sort of internet speeds, file sizes, yeah. different file formats, and that's all I knew. Mm. 
and sort of when I started on, I got introduced to EO1 files and sort of the act was sort of the methodology I could follow as a police officer. I understood, you know, continuity. I knew that the evidence had to be started at a point and it had to be validated. It's no different to continuity on an exhibit bag, for mm. example. But would those questions, if I'd have been interviewed, would I have passed it? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a long, long time ago, and I'm still in the industry and still enjoy it. But that's a very hard, so I don't know how you guys can develop an interview plan for it. And no. Yeah, it's, it, it's difficult. Recruitment is difficult um, but for both parties, really. Yeah. I, I'll never forget, the, I've, I was sat in that chair, the same as what they were, really. And it's also about, if you're nervous, you're not, never going to be able to truly reflect who you actually are as such, really. And it shouldn't always just be reliant on that half an hour, what you tell me in an interview is what you've then assessed on for getting in. Because, you know, I, I joined the police and I'd have no previous experience of interviews. I failed my first police interview because I, I didn't know what to say because I'd, I'd got no experience. And because uh, my route, I joined the special constabulary before I joined the regulars. And even the special constabulary, the, the two people that interviewed me, one didn't want me in and, and the other person did. And the, the, the person that wanted me in got away and managed to recruit. And I was then al allowed to develop into the way that I could be as a police officer and prove to them that I, I had the ability, but sometimes you're not actually that way, way of operating as such, really. And I think sometimes we, we naturally lose talent on the basis of making them stick to this structure of sometimes that isn't fit for purpose. Yeah. And sometimes we need to change the way that we recruit and, and get those people, the calibre of people in that we need. Yeah, and, really. and I think it's good because, like when I joined the Forensic Lab, I, I was, I was asking questions. Okay, I can see we do it that way, yeah. but why do we do it that yeah. way? Have you ever thought about this? And, and I think that's why we need sort of fresh staff really yeah. to, to yeah. come and ask those questions yeah. because otherwise we don't evolve, do we? But no. as, as an industry, especially for law enforcement, it costs a lot of money to recruit, costs a lot of money to train, and then how, how do you retain? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the really hard yeah. part. Because like, especially like civilian-wise, they can come in, receive two years of training, great experience on their CV, and like you said earlier, know that they're going to earn more money in the private yeah. industry. But yeah. it's, it's the hope that the moral compass keeps them, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, so we spoke about sort of your pathway into digital forensics and what one thing would you do better. So a lot of people would, would have the same opinion as you, that letting something go, disseminating yeah. that workload. Are you prepared to share one mistake that you've made in this industry and not just image in your own hard drive? <laughs> yeah, well, I've, um, th that question really got me actually when I was thinking back then, I thought, what actual mistakes got? And then, then I thought of something and I thought actually, yesterday in my presentation, and I talked about earlier about um, some, some things that happen in my life drive my behaviour. And I remember a job, um, again quite young in it and it was a um, peer-to-peer download um, intelligence that this, got, uh, this guy had been downloading massive amounts of um, CSAM IOC. Um, so we affected the arrest of the warrant. He got two children. He was married. He was a chef. Um, interviewed him. Um, he went no comment on, on basis of legal advice. Um, and it, this was at the time when uh, we had a three-year backlog of computers and it was all computer-based, no mobile forensics, etc. Really. In, in fact, he did have a phone and I examined and that was clear. 
We then get a second referral at a, a completely different town, completely different name. We, have, we end up affecting a warrant at that address. And then we then work out that it was him again had become sofa surfing because we basically removed him out of his family to safeguard his children. So as a result of my investigation, his wife stopped him from seeing the children. Um, she started divorce proceedings. He lost his job. He became an alcoholic. And he would constantly ring me up every week saying, I've not done this, I've not done this, I've not done this. And I'm like, yeah, you have done this. You've got, got two separate warrants. And two years later, we downloaded computers and he hadn't done it. It was literally a, a movie downloader. And when the high-tech crime examiner went into that phone uh, computers, they could prove that it was not a deliberate download. Yeah. He'd never even looked at the file paths or anything like that. And that taught me a massive lesson that I prejudged him and I wasn't impartial, I was biased towards him. And ever since that day, my culture has changed in terms of what I deliver because you should never assume that, that that's a done and dusted case. And that taught me a massive thing that a lot of police officers are biased and that it's almost impossible to be impartial, as I said to you yesterday. And that, what I put in my slide is driven by my mistake back then. Yeah. And it's something that I kind of have to live with because it's not my fault that there's a three-year backlog, but could I have done something better? Um, could I have got his fast track more, um, the ability that he was an alcoholic? Could I have got the score upgraded? So yeah, so there's things like that where my own fault of judging him affected his life more than maybe it could have done. And yes. would he have still been able to see his children and, and all that sort of thing, really? So that is something that I kind of, one of the things I have to live with, and there's been many jobs in Pollitt where I've made decisions that have affected people's lives, where yeah. I've had people kill themselves as a result of me safeguarding their children. And again, that's when I was struggling to stay in Pollock because I was making decisions that were affecting other people's lives and I was hurting people and yeah. I, I just couldn't cope with it anymore, so I had to get out. Yeah. And this is what we have with people that categorise indecent as their children. At some point, there's a point where you need help. And this is where I don't get with management when they don't look after their staff, when they don't identify that you can see that your staff are struggling and some of these, I call them micromanagers, where they basically keep hammering their staff. And then sometimes it's okay to send them home an hour early because sometimes I might turn around and say to them about a week later, oh, there's a jobbing, do you mind stopping on a bit? But it's, it's give and take. Yeah. But you get all these managers that don't recognise how to look after staff and, and, and then again, that comes from my driving behaviour of yeah. that ability as well, really. And I, I think I chatted to you about it before that my old police force, we used to have six monthly mandatory counselling yeah. and it was at a lady's house you'd turn up have a cup of tea and talk about anything but so yeah. you'd be sitting having a cup of tea probably not realizing what what she was assessing you yes. on um, and because of police cutbacks that was then stopped so yeah. it wasn't six monthly mandatory you had to self-refer yeah which is crazy because at the point of self-referral it's too late yeah. and was that just siloed to my police force? Is it yeah. the same in yours? Um, I, I think we went through a stage of, um, same again, uh, self-referral, but we've brought it back in again now where um, every six months you have to book an appointment um, for, for mandatory support, etc. really. Um, and yeah, and, and again, a lot of the times they'll ask me questions like, how much are you drinking? Um, do you take drugs? Um, and your, what are your behaviours like? Really? Have your behaviours changed? And it's all of the things that are, um, points that you may notice that, especially in your staff, such when you're supervising them, are your staff turning up late? Um, do they stink a drink or, you know, that yeah. sort of thing really? Or um, have they got marital problems? And all the other things that kind of 
drive their behaviour to how they perform. If you've got happy staff, then your your, your performance will always improve. Yeah. Really, and yeah, that's because like you say, it's it's not only the impact of viewing the horrible material that yeah. we have to view. It's like you said, we execute a warrant. We're basically letting off a hand grenade in yeah. someone's whole world. Yeah. And it's the impact on the children, the family, that sort of their presence in their community, because once that whispers soon start mm. and yeah. that they end up probably having to move area, yeah. it, it, it's a big, to have that on your shoulders, yeah. especially if, it, if it's a wrong decision, that's, yeah. it's very hard yeah. to take. Yeah, really, really hard. And, and again, all the, all the police forces across the country, there are people in those queues um, of people that are suffering and they've not done anything wrong. Um, yeah. And it's, it's almost criminal that we're, we're punishing them. It's almost an oppression. Because <laughs> I'm quite outspoken. I, um, I, had an, I had an argument with one of the sergeants I work with who um, was constantly blocking me in terms of me trying to progress things. Um, and, and I said some th things to him that I shouldn't have said to him really, but um, I, don't know, I've, I've, I won't even repeat them to be honest, but it was just because I cared. I, I just didn't want this we've got to stop the ability just having these massive backlogs of people that sometimes haven't done anything wrong really and um, yeah that's, the, yeah. that's the, the industry that we're all stuck in we've all got this problem we all, we all desperately want to give that um, ability to do that but we can't because we're flooded yeah um, and we're losing staff left right and centre and on, I could go on and on really yeah. but, but that, that's the, the fine line between and, and what concerns me about triage is if we try and push too much to people who aren't aware of what they're reporting on, yeah. are people going to be charged incorrectly? Are they going to court on evidence that s someone who worked in a DFU would not prosecute them on? Yeah. And it, it's that fine line of, yes, there's too much work. Yes, there's huge backlog. So we, we need a solution to that. Yeah. But there still needs to be someone overseeing what evidence is actually yeah. pushed to court, isn't yeah. there? And yeah. I don't know if it's happening now. It certainly wasn't at my time. but. The CPS need to be more aware yeah. and need to attend and be more aware of this industry. Because I used to turn up at court and they'd ask for a full extraction by the next day. And they just don't understand how the technology works. They, they don't understand just by asking sort of those requests that it's not possible. Mm. And they need an awareness sort of, yeah, yeah to bring them up to speed. But so I know people are sitting here wanting lunch, so we'll finish off with one last question. And the final question now is provided by our previous guest. And our previous guest was a gentleman called Derek Frawley, who's a retired detective from Canada. And he's asked, and it's very apt with ChatGBT and everything, what effect or role do you think AI will have on our investigations in the next five years? It's a, it's a massive boom. Um, I've been sat here the last two days and uh, I said I'll just recruit a new DMI and his specialism is going to have to be artificial intelligence and I'll, I'll need someone to basically keep their finger on the pulse to work out what's going on. But, you know, the development of software in particular, we now got the recognised content and the ability to go straight to where there's, there's pictures of knives and drugs and stuff and that's saving us masses of time. And, and there is um, so much more that we could probably do with artificial intelligence, but it's got not to be at the risk of um, jobs and, yeah. and, and we'll, we'll, we'll always need that uh, manual oversight etc really and I'd, I'm not a massive advocate of artificial intelligence purely but I, I, I do worry that management or um, bosses will see that as a cost saving uh, um, exercise as such really and the ability of well maybe they can 
have artificial intelligence to categorise indecent to the children. Well, that wouldn't be such a bad thing if it then allowed those people that were doing the, those sorts of jobs to then work on the, the better jobs. And yeah. I, I, I use the word better jobs, but the jobs that need that specialism yes. and involvement in them, and I'm not undermining what CSAM is in terms of the, uh, you know, the trauma and stuff that's linked to that, but I think it would in, in some ways help out and give the officers, because I think one of the biggest things that staff want to do is they want job satisfaction. They want to know that they've done a good job. And, and, and again, one of the biggest problems we have, we never say thank you for some of the good work that they do. We're, we're always quick to flog people or tell them off for something that they've done wrong, but we never actually pat people on the back. Because that, when, they, when they get the, that feedback that they've done really well, that gives them that drive to then want to do the next job and go the extra mile, etc. Yeah. really. And, and again, if you don't reward your staff by telling them that they're doing well, and policing is terrible. Policing will just basically, you never get thank you. Very, very rarely you do. But they're so quick to then basically say, oh, you, you, you made this mistake, you put an exhibit number wrong, or, you know, the SFRs, something's wrong with that or something. And, yeah, that's um, something that we need yeah. to improve as well. And like you say, it's, it's the hope that bosses don't just believe into the hype. Because yes. I've seen plenty of sort of examples of how ChatGBT was seriously wrong. Yeah. And th this AI is great technology because we've actually got a script on our customer forum that uses um, Whisper, which is made by the same developer as OpenAI, but it does exactly what Andy Lister was talking about earlier with, so any audio file, whether it's in a video, it will take yep. all of the speech and convert it to text. And we've actually written that into a Python script, and it, the results are pretty good. Yep. And yep. that's where you've got to, but you've also got to understand the limitations. Yes. That yep. I would not go to court no. on AI evidence. No. But yeah. if it allows me to run keyword searches and yeah. find that data faster, then it's helping my job. Yeah. yeah. And that's sort of the sweet spot for it, really. Yes. Is it, it's never yeah. going to replace a human. No. It's just going to assist. No. Yeah. But no. But um, thank you very much for your time today, Jason. And um, thanks for those who have joined us for episode seven of Forensic Fix. Thank you.